0: This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them.
1: And hello, and this is Shenandoah down under, or Confederate Pirates save the whales, with a Robert Mob, a Robert Love, and Michael O'Brien. Mm-hmm. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob. Good morning, Rob. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or good midnight, wherever you might happen to be in the world. And that's our introduction over, and I, I think we need to high-five for that. Hi, high-five effect at the microphone. Okay,
0: so well, we'll put that in post.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but it is not just Rob and Mob today. So following on from, I think, our highly su- successful interview with Bayard uh, Shippard from the American Civil War Roundtable of Australia, Inc., we have today Barry Compton, who is the Secretary of the American Civil War Society of Australia, Inc. Good morning. Good morning to us, Barry. How are you? Good
2: morning to you. Saint Patrick's Day, we are in for a wonderful day's worth of entertainment.
1: Oh, oh yes.
0: <laughs> we are. Barry, I am so excited that you have launched, you're choosing to launch your new e-publication here on Shenandoah Down Under.
2: Correct. It was uploaded to iTunes last weekend, Dixie Down Under by Barry Crompton, Uh, the reaction to the Civil War and the Shenandoah's visit to Melbourne, Australia.
0: Fantastic. And uh, for the benefit of our listeners, I'm now holding a copy up to the microphone so that you can see. (laughs) And Barry, this this book is uh, an exhaustive account of various things that went on during the visit to Melbourne. You've gone very, very deep into uh, primary resources and records and newspapers of the day and so on. How long has it taken you to
1: put
2: all of this together? It's surprising, really. I've probably been doing it for 20 or 30 years now since uh, we really got interested in trying to find out what we could do on on the Shenandoah. And there's so much of the primary source material, the newspaper records of uh, the Melbourne Three Melbourne newspapers at that time. There are the uh, reports by the consul, the United States consul to his superiors in Washington DC. There are the parliamentary records. There are the journals and the memoirs of the officers of the Shenandoah themselves. There are also diaries and comments by local people around Melbourne. So when you combine them all together. Very expensive to go and search for all that information in one location, but if you actually have it available at your fingertips, and I've transcribed most of those records now, so anyone who wants to do all the work can do it in one place.
1: That is fantastic. Now again, uh, Barry, So, we were talking to you before the show, and so you're, you're not trying, there are any number of books out there, well when I say any number, probably seven or eight, that, that tell the story of the Shenandoah as, as, as a narrative, as a story. Now, you're, you're, you're not trying to do that. You're just basically trying to get all, all the research together. That's in right. Place.
2: There are a number of books that have been written. Certainly in the last 30 or 40 years, there have been probably 20 books. Oh. In the last 10 years, half a dozen books or so that do a very good job. Uh, some are certainly better than others. Uh, some are more researched. Some have just used the same material as they have in the past, but there's a couple, uh, certainly The Officers of the Shenandoah by Angus yep, uh, yep. Curry is wonderful when it comes to oh, information on. Again,
0: <laughs> I'm going to do the traditional thing. I'm oh. holding that up to the microphone. Fantastic now. book. Lovely. This, has been a, this is a fantastic book, and Angus Curry is an Australian as
2: well. Melbourne born, Melbourne researched, and uh, excellent source material. So what I've done is basically got a lot of the information together. Put it in the one place. I've delved into a lot of the local records or so that aren't available to overseas people. Uh, The births deaths, and marriages, the uh, wills and probates, uh, the consular records and a few of those sorts of things so that if you do want to look at the street directories, uh, who was who, who was alive, who had died, this is the one place that you might find that information. Wow. So
0: the the this, this interest that you had in the Shenandoah goes back a long time
2: I was um fortunate enough to be around when Cyril Pearl released his book, Rebel Down Under, in ah, 1970. You
0: know, I, I, it's actually over there. and I can't be bothered reaching <laughs> over. But, uh, Cyril I'm Mike
2: virtually
1: holding virtually it up to the microphone. Yes, Cyril this is a
2: book called uh, Rebel uh, Down Under, published in 1970 by Heinemann and Company of Melbourne and uh, written by a, a journalist who was then working for the Sydney Morning Herald, Cyril Pearl, who'd written three or four books in the past or so uh, and continued writing a few more after this, he doesn't use any footnotes or cite his uh, material and a lot of the um, information in the jimals. book Sorry. <laughs> is not exactly uh, verbatim. He's used a lot of material and... Uh, Tried to uh, capture the flavour of it, but you wouldn't want to use it as the uh, research guide. Well,
0: interestingly, Barry, that is exactly the same book that uh, first piqued my interest in this story because I picked it up, as I've mentioned before, in the Nunawadding Public Library. It was on their remainder uh, tray for 50 cents and I I bought it then.
2: And I was probably uh, picking up as many copies as I can. I reckon in the last 40 years, I've probably bought more than 50 copies of the book. If I could pick them up for a dollar each, and then they were $2, $5, $10. Nowadays, they're getting a bit more expensive, but for a long, long time, when we had overseas visitors arriving in Melbourne, it was the one thing that we would give them as a thank you present, because it was the only thing published locally on the on the Shenandoah up until Angus's book, Came Ooh. out... Although view, um,
1: I think I think Angus, is the, the officers of the CSH, show, I think that's around $70. So <laughs> you can probably still... But it's much, much better research, it has to be said, than, uh, than Cyril Pearl. And
2: I've still got half a dozen copies in my library or so that I'll be happy to hand over. Unfortunately, none of them are signed because Mr Pearl uh, is now deceased. Uh, dear. But uh, there's a lot of information in the book or so that he wrote that... Uh, I haven't even been able to find out where the information came from. He tells, for example, of uh, the president of the Melbourne Club sitting next to the captain of the Shenandoah. And that hasn't been found to be in any records that I've been able to locate either. But uh, through some of the information that we did find, it, it was then one of those ideas that I found, all right, if I can do this, I can go a little bit further. And I was looking at one of the reports uh, by the United States consul in Melbourne in the 1870s uh, Adamson who wrote uh, to his superiors that he had found a, a couple of uh, of the crew members who had returned to Melbourne oh. after the surrender and oh, that was... is this
0: is, these would be some of the 42 that uh, got on board
2: correct in Melbourne? and these were the, this was the first time that I was able to really locate we had always thought that the 42 men who served on the Shenandoah who got on board in Melbourne, had used false names, false nationalities and really hadn't given any other information because it was illegal and they weren't supposed to be doing it. But then we found out that uh, due to this correspondence, um, three or four of the names were mentioned. So I got to the local street directories of Melbourne and blow me down. One of the names came up to me and bit me on the nose.
0: Uh, this is street directories from like the 1870s, is yes, it? Yes,
2: uh, through having money on to throw away things like that, I bought the original <laughs> microfilm copies of the Sands and MacDougall street directories of Melbourne from the 1860s through to the 1900s.
0: So the Melway map, that's the street directory in Melbourne now, goes up to map, I think it's 260. How many maps were there in the Melbourne street directory then?
2: Uh, probably twenty or thirty in those uh-huh. days or so. I think that the, the suburbs went out as far as St Kilda. Uh, Brighton was 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 considered one of the retreats at that time. So was uh, Sandringham. Uh, it still is.
1: Yes, one of the the, the moneyed retreats. Yes. And if you went
2: out to Ivanhoe, you had reached the end of the known world.
0: And, and that, uh, for our listeners who aren't from Melbourne, is,
2: is would about now be about five considered... kilometres, six or seven uh, at the very most. Greensboro, which was uh, about ten kilometres out, seven miles, was uh, was still native land. And in fact, where we are now, Rob, uh, in Blackburn South, which is a bit further
0: out from the city.
1: It's about 17 kilometres or 10 miles out of the city.
0: This is, um, this is sort of the uh, stamping ground of a lot of the artists in the Heidelberg School. Yes,
1: yeah, the, the, the Heidelberg School is a, is a little bit... Uh, that was artists like Streeton, uh, McCubbin... Uh, Tom Roberts, all all very famous uh, painter, Australian painters to this day. Uh, they were called the Heidelberg School because they had a a bush camp in Heidelberg, which is another suburb a bit close. Not to the Heidelberg there. in Germany, just uh, in case no, anyone's no, no. confused. There's, there's a um, a lot of issues in Melbourne. With um, almost every place in Melbourne is named after a place in another country. Uh, but they also had a number of camps um, out in, out in our Box Hill Way, which is about um, five kilometres away from from where I currently live. So basically, it was an artist colony. But out it, in the middle of the bush, and yes, now, yeah. and
0: now, of course, we're right in the middle of a uh, a very big metropolis, suburbia. Right, right in, in the middle of. Though, though Barry, I was amazed looking at some of the photographs that were taken. Um, I think it was 10 years after the Shenandoah from uh, some photographers who climbed up the top of a church steeple at, it's called Scott's Church in Collins Street, Melbourne just how big the city was then and and uh, it it amazed me just that the city was only 30 or 40 years old Absolutely and had grown so, so big
2: Very uh, unusual, the fact that, that uh, Melbourne had only been founded in 1835 And by 1851, uh, the citizens of the town wanted to um, separate from the uh, the colony of New South Wales and create their own uh, colony, which they did, the colony of Victoria, uh, 1851. 1852, 1853, gold was uh, discovered. So within a space of 10 or 12 years from uh, the colony being um, named, it was the largest city in the Southern Hemisphere, about 160, 180,000 people. Wow. So, interesting question for you, Barry. Of
0: the 42 uh, men that secretly, to everyone's great surprise, shipped on board the Shenandoah and appeared mysteriously on the decks just after it left Port Phillip Heads, how many of those 42 were native-born Victorians? Have you been able to discover that?
2: At this point, there has only been one person. When we look at the fact that um, the Gold Rush increased the size of the population exponentially from a very small local population to uh, over 100,000 people or so. The majority of those would have turned up 1850s onwards. If they did have children, the youngest would have been 10 or 12, 13 or so at at the very most. One of the fellows who did manage to enlist was a fellow named William Kenyon who was born in uh, Sorrento. His parents were it's, uh, uh,
0: Sorrento here in uh, yes. Victoria not
1: Victoria not, Italy. not in Italy. although correct. again uh, both uh, both are very suburbs uh, for, for the for the rich and famous. <laughs> Sorrento
2: <laughs> Sorrento in those days was uh, forty to fifty kilometers out of Melbourne probably maybe a little bit further forty miles um, and it was only there was a group of uh, people who had come over from Tasmania who were burning lime to create um mortar to be able to to make bricks Mm. and this fellow his parents i think might have been irish um that hasn't been proven yet but he was born about 1848 1849 so he at the age of uh, when the shenandoah uh came in in 1865 he was probably um 16 uh, Actually, would have been a little bit old. He was in his mid-twenties, I think. Oh, so, okay, 18, 1840s. <laughs> 1840s, no, my fault. Um, and he enlisted. So he was about the only locally born. The rest of the people so far that we've found were those typical uh, world travellers who sailed the seas, went from port to port, happened to be in Melbourne at the time of the Shenandoah's arrival and j- virtually jumped from one vessel to another vessel. Several of them may have been residents who had lived here a short time. And so far, we've been able to locate about half a dozen of them who came back to Melbourne after the Shenandoah mm, surrendered okay. in Liverpool.
0: So, how many of them uh, were American? Do you have any idea of that?
2: Very few. Again, as far as we can tell, the majority of them were world travellers. They may have given false information, they, and their names could well have been... Very um, generic names that are far too difficult to do any research. William Hill, William Green is one of the Are these kind of the 19th equivalent of John Smith or John Doe? Definitely, uh, John Brown. And there are so many of these names that you look on the internet and there's just thousands of them. So to go through would be very difficult. But we do know that the ones who who had uh, names that were... Fairly unusual, so we were able to track them down and through the modern invention of the computer, the internet and uh, all of the wonderful work that's been done recently by government officials to have all the births, deaths and marriages available on the internet, we've been able to find, for example, this William Kenyon came back to uh, Melbourne. Was married, had three children, uh, owned a pub in uh, Port Melbourne, was fined for having a uh, house of ill repute at one stage, <laughs> and uh, he was buried in the Melbourne General Cemetery. Um, another of them, Oh, and is his grave still there? He's one of the very few graves that has been marked. He had a wife who uh, died after him and a daughter, I think, so their names are, are all three on the uh, grave on the headstone of this grave.
0: And is there a a marker that indicates he's a veteran of the American Civil War? No,
2: nothing at all. There was only one fellow who died who the newspapers said was a veteran of the Shenandoah. The others who we found who have had death uh, notices in the newspapers, again, very unusual. They don't mention anything at all about their, their service on the Shenandoah. Funny about that.
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, so but they were yeah, on board illegally on a venture that cost the British government £15 million and they didn't happen to mention it. Yeah, funny and
2: there are so many ramifications of that little act that maybe you didn't want to be um, distinguished by having been a member of the Shenandoah. And they returned back to Melbourne, the half a dozen that we've found so far, came back to suburbia, they lived a quiet life, they lived, they died, they married, they had children. Uh, and all Probably sudden, not in that order, though. <laughs> possibly in the order that they should have done it. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's just one of those odd things or so. We found three or four of them who... Um, and, in fact, if, if you look at the register of uh, the crew members as they enlisted on the Shenandoah, out of the 42, only one signed his name. The other 41 sign their name with, with an X.
0: And would this be uh, because they're illiterate or because they're trying to disguise
2: their identity? Illiterate would be my understanding of that. So as a result of that, of course, when they died, they didn't have the money to afford uh, to have headstones or tombstones on their uh, cemetery. Some of them were actually buried in, um, in what they called paupers' graves, mm-hmm. uh, and that, as a consequence of that, there is no record of... Of uh, anything appearing on in the cemeteries.
0: So we're, we're going a little bit ahead of ourselves in the story, but the the crew all finished their cruise in Liverpool. How long did it take these people to dozen, get yeah. these half a dozen to get back here? Do you know?
2: We know one uh, within six months to a year or so they had returned. One of the fellows, unfortunately, surrendered in the Liverpool. Caught a ship back to Australia and died of uh, of a, an epidemic uh, along along something like uh, measles, and died three days before the ship came through the the heads of oh. Oh. of Port Phillip Bay. Uh, so it was most unfortunate that he wasn't able to uh, survive that. He was taken off the ship and he was buried either at the quarantine station at uh, Portsea or at Queenscliff, depending on who you read.
0: And did they? When the, when the ship was paid off and all the uh, the
2: crew and the officers went to the Four Winds in Liverpool, would, did they have money? They would have had some amount of money because the Shenandoah surrounded with some amount of uh, gold. Um, and I think that that was distributed. There were rumours that the uh, captain of the Shenandoah had uh, taken more than his fair share, but we think that that was only... Um, with-
0: a few disgruntled people bad mouthing <laughs> poor Captain Waddell again.
2: Correct. So, and again, that's a little bit in the future. But you can certainly go back to the fact of the uh, the forty-one who signed on board who signed their name with an X. I would assume again that we've got this regular routine. Very rare in those days that you needed to have the ability to read or to write. So mm-hmm. that you would only have uh, if you were say if you were serving on a on a vessel, you didn't have to worry about those sorts of things. Right. Oddly enough, one of my understandings and the great amount of of information that we do have on the Civil War is because, from the eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties onwards, it became more general that that people were being educated, that they could read and write, and the Civil War itself was one of the first times that we have the ability to read letters. Uh, 1840s they introduced the the penny black in uh, mm-hmm. london and all of a sudden you could write a letter for a very small amount of money that would be delivered either locally or interstate around the world which is again one of those things that only occurred from the 1840s 1850s Newspapers, oh, and 50s onwards apparently
1: this also caused a great um, social and moral panic because um, Anthony Trollope, uh, the English novelist who was also the the head of the, the postal service at the time, actually introduced the the post office box, and that meant, of course, that unmarried women could communicate with people, presumably male people, without the supervision of their parents, and that this was this caused. And um, same as- things happening these days with mobile phones. <laughs>
2: But yes, that's quite right. So that for 150 years or so, you could write a letter and have it delivered or so. And uh, 1930s, before the uh, common use of the telephone, of course, everyone wrote thank you notes back. Invitations went out and thank you notes went back and correspondence on a daily basis was very important. But you've got to have those things in the right frame of mind that you do need to be educated you do need to know how to read and write. You do know how the Post Office works to be able to uh, send letters. And newspapers, of course, were the same thing with the introduction of the, the gold rush to Australia. Three local Melbourne newspapers came on board in the 1840s, 1850s, uh, the Melbourne Age, the Melbourne Herald and the Melbourne Argus. So you've got people who've got the ability to read, the the, the ability to actually buy newspapers, to get their photographs taken, which was, uh, which was again another invention of the 1850s. So at the time of the Civil War, you've got this mass amount of information available that you did not have in the, in the previous um, mm. economic times. So uh,
0: you're very fortunate that there were three Melbourne papers at the time that were talking about the visit of the Shenandoah, as you said, the Argus, the Age and the Herald, of which the Age still
2: exists as the Age. The, the Herald, Herald is now, but now it's the uh, Melbourne Herald Sun. Um, they they were an afternoon newspaper, eighteen uh, sixties onwards, and they began by bringing out a morning newspaper, nineteen seventeen or thereabouts, called the um, the the Sun. Nineteen uh, eighties they merged when there was no longer the requirement of an afternoon newspaper, and they became the Melbourne Herald Sun, uh, the Argus. Continued until the 18, till the 1950s when they were, uh, taken over, uh, by an English company who uh, ran them dry of money. And then within 10 years they were bought up by the Herald Sun, merged, or the journalists went to work for the Herald Sun. The Argus building is in Melbourne still, uh, has been a derelict building for 40 years now, 50 years. Um, but the name of the Argus uh, lives on. So you've used uh,
0: each of those papers to glean useful information, yes, out
2: of the three newspapers, two supported the uh, Shenandoah and the government, the uh, Argus and the Age, uh, sorry, the Argus and the Herald, the Age newspaper, which was run by David Syme, and he continued to run that for another seventy eighty years or so. He was uh, the one newspaper that was anti Shenandoah and going through the records again, you find things lurking in the background. Both of the editors of the Ar- Argus and the Herald were both members of the Melbourne Club. Which the
0: uh, officers of the Shenandoah memorably went and had a uh,
2: dinner with. And, right, but David Syme, as a good Scottish man, wasn't a member of the Melbourne Club, and I wonder whether there was uh, something that he was always going to be the outspoken rebel who was going to rail against the uh, bureaucracy and... Normalty.
1: Well, the, the age was called the Thunderer. So it was, uh, you know, if, if, if they were again something, you really knew about it.
0: I'm, I'm quite surprised by... Uh, I, I also was having a good look on the internet, and it's amazing that you can go back and look at uh, issues of the age and, and the Argus and so on from, from the period online now. And uh, the 27th of January, uh, I think it is, The Age has a very long article about the arrival of the Shenandoah, which had only just arrived, with, I thought, an astonishing amount of detail. Where would have they got all of that information from so so rapidly?
2: Uh, They would have had reporters who would have been ferried to the ship to ask information. They wouldn't, of course, have had uh, notice of the Shenandoah arriving through Telegraph because of uh, Telegraph, didn't go all the way to Australia at that stage, so they would have had to have uh, picked up local information from uh, whoever they could. There was a fellow who lived in Williamstown, Philip Ferguson Jones, who was a reporter, and he uh, was um, friendly with the officers of the Shenandoah, and later he was appointed, within, when the Shenandoah left, Philip Ferguson Jones was appointed the uh, honorary confederate um consular official as such.
1: Oh, well, that ought to be one of the shortest-lived jobs in <laughs> history.
2: Correct. So um, did Waddell
0: appoint him that, or how, how was that did,
2: made? Waddell did. He he was, he was known as the, the Confederate agent uh, for duties that he had uh, done, and there were a number of uh, local business people who uh, supported the the Um There were shipwrights, there were merchants, there were people who gave them money. There was a large American population from the northern states, the Yankees, who didn't appreciate that the Shenandoah was in town. Of course, the, the United States consul ran to the colonial government and uh, ranted and raved as much as he possibly could. And again, you, you see this circle of uh, friendship between uh, the editors of the newspaper, the colonial officials, um, and the people in power were mostly all members of the Melbourne Club. The ones who weren't members of the Melbourne Club included uh, David Syme, the editor of The Age, and the United States Consul, William Blanchard.
0: But we're we're treading a very fine line politically here, of course, because uh, of the the neutrality of... uh Of the British Empire. Very
2: important that uh, they tread the fine line. The governor of the colony, Sir Charles Darling, made sure that the government didn't go anything further. He'd already read out the Neutrality Act, and Queen Victoria had also issued a a proclamation to make sure that they were allowed to offer the um, assistance that, under the guidelines of what became uh, neutrality guidelines. And... uh, The Shenandoah's officers, Captain Waddell, said that he went to the government and said, all that I need is sufficient supplies and coal to get to the nearest home port. And if that was going to be the situation, then it would have been Captain Waddell's requirements that he would be able to sail out of Melbourne with a fit ship after repairs had been done. And that was uh, part of
0: the problem, wasn't it? Because, of course... uh the propeller needed quite a bit of work
1: done to it. After
2: the damage had been done by the uh, storm, while the Shenandoah had been sailing towards Australia, that was one of the things that needed to be done. And again, the government decided that uh, if, under the laws of neutrality, they were able to assist. But the fine line was that if they rented out the Williamstown patent slip to a private contractor, the government was not seen to be actively fixing the Shenandoah.
1: Uh, so it was a 19th century uh, version of a PPL. <laughs> correct, <laughs> correct. Well, mind you, I think um, I have to say, reading the, the Neut- Neutrality Act doesn't quite have the same resonance as reading the Riot Act, doesn't does no, it? It's, no. you know, reading the Riot Act means, okay, be gone, you rioters, whereas reading the Neutrality Act just sounds a bit neutral.
0: But uh, the Neutrality Act uh, had some very serious ramifications if it was breached, and of course, it was because these forty-two uh, stowaways mysteriously appeared um, in Waddell's, uh sorry in Whittle's journal. He's the uh, the first officer. Um, very conveniently, the thirty or so pages of the visit to Melbourne are missing. Uh, Barry, what's your thoughts? Do you think the officers were totally uh, conniving with the idea that they needed to recruit crew?
2: And surprisingly enough, there isn't anything at all in any of the other uh, memoirs, journals, logbooks, uh, ships logs or anything at all about these these 42 men. So um, the officers certainly stood as as one in that they were very surprised that these men uh, arrived uh, out of hidden places just as the ship had cleared international waters after it left Melbourne. We do know the. however... So, that so Barry,
0: were they shocked or were they... And I'm, I'm doing air quotes, quotes to the microphone. Shocked. What do you think?
1: Uh, also, how do stowaways in a water tank know that, now that you've reached international
2: waters? Knock, knock, knock. Here I am. Come and get me. Uh, somewhere down the track, there, there were supposedly... Um, Advertisements placed in newspapers for recruits Mm -hmm. that were saying uh, wanted recruits, wanted young men to to go up country to a new location, apply to this address at 125 Thunders Lane East uh, and they would be met by people. And one of the uh, fellows did go there, a fellow, George Drummond from Carlton, went there and uh, when he was met by two men who were trying to Shanghai him onto joining the Shenandoah's crew. After going down to uh, to the ship, he uh, managed to talk himself out of it. Went back to the United States Consul and said, "These people are trying to um, to hire locals." Well, well, um, Alaska certainly is up country from Melbourne.
1: <laughs> Quite a bit up country, though.
2: But it's one of those things that uh, there has never been anything mentioned in any of the journals or the correspondence. The uh, anything has ever been pointed at the Shenandoah saying that they definitely did enlist it but supposition if you join the lines it certainly is the four men who were apprehended Charlie and Charlie the, other three, the Cook, Charlie yes. the Cook uh, they were taken to a court after the Shenandoah had departed um, Charlie was wrapped on the knuckles because he was seen to be um, somewhat feeble uh, one of them was American so he he, he couldn't be charged and two of them were uh, not found to be uh, suitable for uh, for for court services. So as a result of that, uh, you would assume again that the four men who were caught, uh, they must have entered the ship uh, through someone inviting them on, on board.
0: Yeah, I mean, you would just kind of think that it would be very hard to hide 42 men on board. Uh, not a particularly big ship.
1: 70 metres long,
0: but yes. And, you know, I'm just wondering if the officers were walking around uh, averting their eyes <laughs> and blocking their ears. It's shock, it's a little, horror.
1: A yeah. lot like that scene in uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian where, you know, the, the Romans come round to search and everybody hides under a tablecloth or behind a pot of plant. Yeah, yeah.
2: Very much so, I think. that. Uh, but on the other hand, the authorities certainly, they, they made their um, mentions made, by sending a, a detachment of uh, of police down to Williamstown mm-hmm. and also sending um, a, a detachment of artillery. They didn't actually get any further because, as we all know, um, the Shenandoah was foreign soil and they weren't allowed to go on board. And the captain of the Shenandoah, uh, Waddell, as an officer and a gentleman, absolutely pledged his honour that there were no... <laughs> Uh, people on board who shouldn't be there.
1: I, I, I think I think Waddell used his honour to get himself out of a number of tight situations uh, <laughs> during the voyage of the Shenandoahs. So I,
0: I have a supposition and that is that perhaps Charlie and the other three fellows were like sacrificial lambs to say um, okay well these four were to our great surprise and shock discovered on board and we have gotten rid of them and that was enough to to keep everybody on each side satisfied. I've
2: never thought of it that way, but certainly that is a very good supposition that I would uh, support. Hmm. And uh, that was the first half of our uh,
1: interview with uh, with Barry Crompton. Uh, we... We we thought we'd we'd leave uh, our interview with with Barry at a point where he's been complimentary towards us, Mark. Yes, he liked our
0: supposition that the officers must have averted their eyes as the stowaways snuck on board and hid in water tanks and... Behind pot plants
1: or all the other Monty Python-ish things yes. they did, so that they wouldn't be found. Well, look, um, yeah, Barry, Barry might have might have been being kind, but uh, anyway. Um, so we'll, we'll have the the second half of that interview uh, where Barry goes on to to talk further about the the crew members of the of the now um, I'd like to we'd like to make responses to um, a couple of listeners. This, this is this is very exciting. Uh, we we did a response to a listener last week, but uh, they asked Andrew to come in, so. Um, uh, Andrew Kleiderman. Um did a response to um, our, our episode about Tristan Da Cunha. I I do hope I'm getting better at pronouncing Tristan Da Cunha. Just think, big Kahuna, Rob. Big Kahuna. No, 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 I'm, I'm very I'm not... Tristan's a big Kahuna. No. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, uh, Andrew uh, got onto um, Google Maps and apparently the the main bar of Tristan Da Cunha. And apparently the only object of interest on Google Maps, at least, um, uh, apart from several churches, but the main bar is called the Albatross. And um, uh, Andrew was um, had a supposition that maybe that was named by um, the, um, the sailors on an unfortunate ship going to the Great Australian Bight. Could have been. Could have been. Because...
0: In that particular episode, which is way back in, I think, episode 10, Mm. we were riffing on the idea that naming your ship the Albatross is not a good idea, and we were quoting
1: some shipwreck stats in the Great Australian Bite to prove so. Yes. Uh, But mind you, naming your your sailor's bar the Albatross might might also be a bit of a warning to the sailors that that, that they shouldn't get sunk in in the bar, but uh, but there you go. And um, I would also like to respond to... now. I don't know how to pronounce your second name, um, Nick. I'm pretty sure about your first name, though. Nick Fees. Uh, um, and he raised an interesting question in that, um, I think, back in ooh, episode seven. seven um, we said that um, the governor of Tristan de Cunha was told by Waddell that the Shenandoah was going to Australia. Yes,
0: Waddell told his the secret plans of the Shenandoah to this man on Tristan de
1: Cunha, but didn't actually tell any of his officers or crew. Yeah, now, now, that is a, a supposition uh, that we got from uh, Tom Chaffin, uh, C of Grey. Uh, but um, in the very next episode, we, we quote um, Executive Officer Whittle, saying that Tristan de Cunha had no governor, and that when... Uh, a, a matter of moment had to be decided. Uh, the, the families would get together, and if, if somebody had done the wrong thing, the, the other the other members of the families would would tell him that he was a dog. That um, was that was Justice Tristan de Cunha style. Now, 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 now it's entirely possible that um, now the 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 uh, the source that we have saying that. Um, uh, Waddell did say, the, did say this to the governor, is, is a secondary source. Um, and Whittle certainly uh, does not mention this in, in his original source, but then he wouldn't because Waddell wasn't, wasn't telling anybody. But, Michael, I believe you have another theory that might reconcile both descriptions.
0: Yes, Whittle does say that uh, there, are a number of, there were a number of families on the island and they took it in turns at being the point of contact for visiting ships Okay. So the headman of each of these families was, in effect, the governor with a lowercase G, I suppose,
1: um, for when visiting ships came. Okay. So, so perhaps not so much the governor, but uh, in in English uh, style. The, the gov. Or the, the governor. The, the, the governor, yes. yes. yes.
0: So I, I think that's probably where the interpretation has came from. So uh, maybe we should go back and change the uppercase G to a lowercase G <laughs> on, our, on our
1: blog post, I don't know. Well, look, this is, this is one of the fascinations of history, and I, I think it's why history is ultimately an art rather than a science, because there is some stuff that is, is just lost, that, that, that can never be found out. And, and with some of that, you, you do find, the journal in the attic of the executive officer. But um, in in many other cases, the journals would have been just lost or dispersed to the four winds or um, like, I'm sure, Mr Chew's letters that that flew out of his sailing chest and went over the side. uh, You know, some some things are are lost forever. But um, I think we've come to the end of yet another episode, Molly. We have
0: indeed. We've got the second part of our interview with Barry next week and we'll also give you an update on where the ship currently is, and things are warming
1: up, shall we say. Oh, well, uh, yes, uh, figuratively, literally, nominally. And, uh, yes, uh, the crew of the Shenandoah, uh, the Shenandoah will be getting towards the equator, and um, some interesting things happen around them. Uh, poor Assistant Surgeon McNulty. Um, he has a weakness, apparently. Yes.
0: What that weakness is, uh, we'll go into more detail next week, but you can use your imagination between now and then. Uh, it was a weakness that apparently... Lots of naval surgeons at least appear to have in fiction and in film.
1: Yes, yes. And I do remember he had to be retrieved from the bars of Williamstown. Uh, let let, let us too. leave it to that. Anyway, um, uh, I'd once again like to very much thank uh, Barry Crompton um, for, his, uh, for his interview. And I would just like to say that um, from Rob, Mob and Barry, this has been Shenandoah Down Under or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob and Tally Ho and ahoy.